From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today is the final episode of our five-part miniseries, Halloween is Cancelled. Today, we're going to take an inside baseball look at all things Halloween Resurrection, Dimension Films. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, former Dimension Films executive, Louis Spiegler. Yeah. Louis, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Josh? I'm doing good. Thank you for joining me today. I was wondering, could you introduce yourself to the Dread Central audience? Sure. Um, my name is Louis Spiegler. I am an independent producer, writer, and recovered Miramax Dimension executive. (laughs) Hey, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, So 
I was wondering, first things first, how did you get your start in Hollywood? Um, I got my start as an assistant. I was working at ICM, International Creative Management, um, which is now owned by CAA. But um, back in the day, they were one of the big three or big four. Uh, and I was in New York working in, I started in the mailroom, which was, you know, that's, that's where you begin when you're in the agent training program. And, um, and then landed on a desk. And at the time I was working there, it was because I was in New York, that it almost felt like there was this feeding line, you know, that went, that connected ICM to Miramax. Um, and so people were gradually making their way out of ICM, mostly assistants, um, were ending up at Miramax working as assistants in other departments. And there was a guy who had worked at ICM who I had kept in close contact with. And he one day told me there was this opening to be an assistant. Uh, and, you know, can you fax, just to date myself even further, he said, can you fax over your resume? <laughs> Um, which I did. And, you know, in short order, I was interviewing with the assistant who I was going to be second in command to. And after passing muster with him, I came in to meet with the the big guy who I was going to be co-assisting. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and that was, that was my foray. And that was how I ended up at the dimension side of Miramax. Can I ask who that head of charge was at the time? Uh, yes, that was um, Bob Weinstein. Okay, very interesting. Yes. Um, what was that like at the time? Like, were you familiar with this person as an entity? I was. Um, mm-hmm. I was familiar. I mean, you know, this was like the end of the 90s in New York. And, you know, Miramax was the one of the you know they were sort of the one of the top certainly they were one of the top places in new york i mean it was really miramax and new line i would say were the dominant players with um october films which sort of you know went through a couple of name changes before becoming focus uh and then there was you know scott rudin who was legendary notorious however you want to put it um but he had a you know a major presence in New York. Um, but really, you know, Miramax seemed to be the place with, with new line tied, I would say, maybe running a close second um, in terms of being places that if you wanted to work in the film business, but wanted to do it out of New York, that was where you were. That was, that was, that was, the, that was the game. Were you nervous at all having to work with such big personalities? Like, was there anything going in that you sort of, you know, could have been nervous about? No, because, you know, just to put things into sort of the proper context, I had been working as an assistant to a pretty demanding agent at ICM, uh, a woman named Elaine Goldsmith Thomas, who was tough but fair, you know, but the hours were crazy. Um, and tempers were constantly flaring at ICM between everyone, um, because that was just sort of the culture at ICM. And then I had been dealing on a regular basis with, you know, the assistants that worked with 
Scott Rudin, and to an extent, the assistants and, you know, the people that were working with Harvey. So, it, you know, assistants at that, in that time, we all kind of got to know one another. And so stories were always being shared. And, you know, there were, there were really no surprises, you know, anybody who came into work for one of the big agents in New York, or anybody who was going to work for Scott Rudin, you know, knew, like with Scott, you just knew, all right, the hours are insane. He covers theater and film. You're expected to be in the office at 7am. If you're the new guy, and you're not expected to roll out of there until 10. And you, you know, you're on call and all that craziness. Um, and, and Bob and Harvey had a similar reputation. I would say Harvey in particular had the reputation for crazy hours, you know, and a team of three or four assistants. And he was, you know, constantly on the move, you know, constantly flying to and from LA or, or film sets and, you know, um, needed, needed basically, you know, was like traveling with the president, you know, whenever he went somewhere, he traveled with at least one person. Bob, on the other hand, was a lot more mercurial and was much more focused on the business of making movies and the business of running the company. And, you know, didn't, he liked to keep a low, a low profile. He didn't, he, where, where Harvey thrived in the spotlight, Bob would shrink into the background and, you know, at any premiere or whatever event that they were at, you know, um, he might be the last to arrive and the first to leave, you know, that kind of, that was sort of his, his MO. I wouldn't, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him, excuse me, I wouldn't necessarily put him at the same, uh, uh, how would I describe? It? I wouldn't exactly say he was um, Logan Roy from Succession, but you know, if you can imagine that sort of moodiness and like, all right, I'm out of here. You mm-hmm. know, that was that was Bob. Yeah. Now, of course, a lot came out in 2017 with the Me Too movement. Were you shocked by all of that, or is that something that took you? and your peers by surprise. I I think we were initially a lot of us taken by surprise only because um you know, I think the the people who worked at the company, there were like different layers, different tranches, I guess is how I would put it. Um but the people who sort of spent enough time in that sort of orbit just generally had a sense of like Oh, you know, Harvey's a Harvey's a player, Harvey, you know, mm-hmm. there was like this unspoken, you know, like, oh, we all sort of knew that he was he, you know, was sort of in that old school Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. mode of like, you know, he's married, but or whatever. You know, we I'm knew that he was yeah. yeah. Um I so I think when this the the story that everybody not everybody, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people at the company were sort of um, expecting to break at some point was just infidelity, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, so I think when the when the actual story broke, there was a lot. Of, I, I know there were a lot of, you know, phone calls back and forth between everybody. Holy shit. You know what? Wait, this is this mm-hmm. is the next level, you know. 
Um, and then I think what happened over you know, in pretty quick succession, especially once it became apparent that um, that they were releasing you know everybody from their NDAs, um, and people no longer had that fear of lawsuit, you know, for for saying anything. That's when you started to get to hear more and more um, what people, what certain people either really knew or suspected and and then it also became very clear like why they weren't talking about it you know um just because as you started hearing more and more you know about the kind of lawsuits but also if you worked there and you saw the level of attorneys that those guys could retain and you know just for the for regular business dealing I think that that'll do it. Um, when you, if you, if you saw the way they handled um, legitimate business and the, and the, the, how aggressive they were when it came to negotiating deals and contracts and, and how they expected lawyers at the company to handle things when they thought that something had been breached you know, or they just wanted to be super aggressive about making somebody, you know, bend to their will. Um, you you were kind of you kind of you know you would think twice um, before putting yourself in potential legal jeopardy because you just knew that even if you were right, like they they had the power of the purse and you know. A level attorneys who could make things very, you know, unpleasant, but also very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people, before the story broke and before they knew they could talk about what they knew, were reluctant. Um, and the 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 way I would sort of characterize it was, I think a lot of people assumed that everybody that other people knew the same things, but it was but because those people didn't feel comfortable talking about those things. Um, it was, it, I think it came as a surprise to, to the people who knew um, how many people didn't because mm-hmm. I think there was like an, un, you know, it was kind of like that weird, <clears throat> how could I, with the way I would like, I'm not a, it was like, if you knew somebody else knew the other piece of the puzzle, you were maybe comfortable talking to them about it. But you didn't want to be the first person to open your mouth and then have the other person go, oh, I don't know. Wait, who was that? Who is that you're talking about? You know, and then you were like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, you, you were saying, like, everything broke out. And, you know, in retrospect, seeing things like, you know, more lawyers than necessary being brought into casual situations, like, um, did it repaints any of your experiences sort of knowing what you know now and reflecting on what you saw? Well, you know, at dimension, it was, it was a different story. You know, it was really, we were not in the same, um, swimming in the same water necessarily. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there was overlap for sure. I mean, in terms of executives, you know, we would deal with one another on both sides of the company. Um, but you know, 
the even the way that Bob and Harvey ran the company, there was like this weird thing where, you know, the brothers each, I think, respected that they each ran their had their own staff. And so, you know, Harvey might sometimes bark at a dimension executive um and ask for something but like he also didn't ever he didn't dare you know uh threaten to fire someone who worked for dimension and vice versa you know bob would i remember seeing bob get really annoyed at at at, you know miramax executives not knowing the answers to something that he you know wanted you know asked in the middle of the production meeting that he would attend but he also knew that like you know all he could do was sort of smirk and growl at them but that unless his brother decided oh well i'm gonna now you know shit can that person uh, because of something bob said it it didn't have any weight and and in fact you know they were at times just competitive enough with one another that you know if it's almost like if one or the other got angry at a member of the other brother's team, it was almost like the other brother would then step to protect that person just to be like, don't, don't you tell me how to run my, you know, my, my ship. Yeah. Uh So, um, yeah, that's sort of how I would, I mean, it was, you know, it was a dysfunctional family. (laughs) I mean, listen, I'm sure we could do a whole mini series on the dramas oh, behind sure. the scenes at the studio. But for me personally, what I'm most interested in dimension films in the nineties was the place to be for horror. They owned a couple of the most important franchises at the time. You guys had mm-hmm. scream Halloween, uh, prophecy, Dracula, um, children of the corn. Before we get into your journey with Halloween, yeah. what were some of the other horror properties that you worked on? Um, well, the ones that I mostly worked on directly were Halloween, Children of the Corn, the first Dracula 2000. Um, but then, you know, when I was on Bob's desk, we had about anything that was in production or, you know, in development and going to go into production. I was, you know, part of my job was to keep up with the drafts of scripts and write up my own notes. You know, Bob would read my notes and then, you know, if there was stuff that he thought was relevant or that he really agreed with, he'd bring it up to the filmmakers. You know, sometimes he would, sometimes he would reference me directly when he would bring them up, but sometimes he, you know, it was just my job to sort of, it was like being, um, it's like almost like being a law clerk, you know, to like a Supreme court justice. Um, you know, you knew that, you know, he might just, your job was to do a lot of research for him as well. Um, so, you know, starting with, I think when I, when I was there, you know, starting with things like Mimic and the faculty and, um, whatchamacallit, uh, I'm trying to think of the big ones. Um, Mimic, the faculty, uh, like Halloween H2O, Mm-hmm. Um, first spy kids um cool. i was you know part of my job was just you know keeping up with the development process on those movies and mm-hmm. you know weighing in um 
there was another uh there was a movie phantoms oh yeah that was being made simultaneously as uh the first mimic um and so there was constantly like you know and i think they were both shooting in canada um Mm -hmm. i want to say mimic was in toronto i can't remember if phantoms was in toronto or calgary um but they were in production simultaneously um and i think there was from dusk till dawn movies i think were there too those were done the sequels were done video and those i think shot in south africa cool i remember those um Ah, uh, the scary movies, some Crow sequels, tons and tons. Yeah, the Crow ones were. It seemed like those happened more off radar. I I think um, mm-hmm. we can get into this. You know, there were some parallels in terms of Halloween in that um, the Crow franchise. I believe the rights were controlled by the producer Edward Pressman, mm-hmm. and so I think there was always this sort of one of those tug of wars over you know, who ultimately had creative final say. And I think Ed Pressman had some, you know, had some veto power because he actually, you know, was one of those situations where he owned the rights and they were like, the the deal was for merit was for dimension to, <clears throat> to finance and produce and distribute the movies, but the rights were retained by Pressman. You know. I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that could lead us into Halloween because Halloween right. was also in the hands of sort of two very distinct entities. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Wait, which, and I'm curious, I'll, I'll quiz you. Which two are you referring to? I'm referring to Dimension Films and Trancus Entertainment. Yes, Trancus International, which, International, was, yes. which was, um, yeah. And, that was uh, one of the, again, that was a similar situation where, you know, where uh, Trancus controlled the rights to Halloween, to the, the Michael Myers character. Um, and the deal that they struck was for Dimension to finance and distribute those films. Um, and then I think they would dimension would own the the right to the to the film itself but the character still belonged to trancus and mm-hmm. the deal was that all creative decisions had to be mutually agreed upon and uh. so what that meant was that you know if Trankus genuinely objected to um, something that Dimension wanted to do. They could just gum up the works and say, we're not going to sign off on that. Um, And so, you know, it rarely, I would say it rarely came to blows, but it was definitely, you know, uh, a thing where we had to kind of, you know, do a dance with them and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, really you know, just make them comfortable with certain decisions. Um, but at the same time, if they wanted to absolutely just kill something, um, they could do it. And, you know, I certainly think that they flexed their control when it came to scripts and like what they would, 
say yes to versus, you know, if they, I think in, in the general rule was if it felt like it was a script that was going to, that had the, the um, potential to kill the franchise, you know, kill Michael permanently. Uh, that was usually like a no, no, you know, well, how did they get away with H2O? I wonder. Cause that I was- think with H2O, you know, I think what it was, I, I don't, what I don't, it's funny. I don't actually remember them expressing any objection to Laurie chopping his head off. I think primarily because it just played so well with an audience. Uh And the sense I got was, you know, if the movie does really well, um, we'll just figure out a way to kind of, you know, reboot it. Um, Yeah, and they did. That was, yeah, that that was always the, like, you know, if there was like an outside, if there was, no matter how ridiculous, if there was a way that you could pull it off, um, they were fine with, you know, the badass ending that left the audience thinking, oh, there's going to be no more, you know, no more, no more Michael Myers. Um, Do you think people like Jamie Lee Curtis or, and others maybe had the impression that it was going to be a bit of a finale and maybe some of the producers knew well that that's not, what was going to be? Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, like. Was there any misleading? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I think. Look, I think Jamie, you know, did H two O because it was a juicy role. It was well, you know, it was ultimately well written on the page, and she was, you know, excited to do it. Um, and you know, there had been movies done without her, so I think she wasn't thinking, you know, ahead to, you know, starring in any future ones. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, that's just my, that was just my general sense, you know? That, and I think that mutually, I think the attitude also was like, yeah, if we can get her back for a film and it makes sense, you know, uh, then we'll, we'll go for it, you know? Um, but if there's a way to do it without her, you know, if it requires doing it without her, or if I'm going to kill a story that doesn't require her, that's fine too. You know, mm-hmm. were you there for the development? So, like the script development of Resurrection. Do you remember? Oh yeah, like any of the other directions that this could have gone. Um, you know the 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 overall premise of Resurrection was never wavered. You know, mm. it was it was always going to be a you know, basically what you saw, you know, a reality TV exploration of the Michael Myers house and town. And, you know, but then things go sideways when, oh my God, he's actually shown up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was always going to be that. I think who, it was who more. Who came up with that? Who brought that to the table? Uh, that was, that was, that was Trankus. They worked with, they partnered up with this screenwriter named Larry Brand. Um, who concocted this whole idea and they really liked it. Um, and I think the initial fight, what, cause there's always a fight, you know, was not over the, um, the general story. It was more about the writing of the script, you know, about like, was it too cheesy? Did the characters play right? You know, um, just, was it going to, was, was the dialogue going to just sound too clunky? You know, 
those were the real um, areas where dimension dug in. And I think, you know, rightfully so. I think, you know, I think, I think the, um, from the minute I got involved with the project, um, the, the attitude was, look, our job is to make this script as good as it can be. Um, and you know, what, what just became very clear very early on to us was simply that like Larry had his limitations and it was the, 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 what we were struggling with, with Trankus was, um, basically convincing them to sign off on another screenwriter, but with making them comfortable with it, that we weren't trying to just use another screenwriter to wrestle creative control away from them. Um, you know, I think that was always the concern of Trankus. And, you know, to be fair, um, it wasn't just them. I mean, I think there was always this, you know, um, tension with almost any filmmaker that we did business with, um, on both sides of the company, on both Dimension and Miramax, you know, um, that, you know, you were constantly having to sort of bend the knee, so to speak, you know, and follow the direction of what the studio wanted. Um, and if you were lucky, the studio saw eye to eye with your creative vision, if you were the writer and the director, of, you know, on, on a movie. But, um, but if, but the, if you didn't, it was just going to be a bumpy road because, you know, the, the, the Bob and Harvey would dig in, dig their heels in more and more, you know, uh, because I think there was just a, they, they just came at it from this, a degree of mistrust, you know, that, 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 that for that, you know, the filmmakers were going to not necessarily deliver something that would work properly that they could market properly and so there was always that tension um that existed and so it wasn't unique to the dynamic you know the 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 trankus dimension dynamic was not unique to that arrangement i think there was always those kinds of levels of tension i think the difference was unlike other projects where if it was a spec script and dimension bought it or you know what option the book or whatever where they own where they controlled the rights to whatever it was that was being made um they had an easier time you know taking a project in the direction the studio wanted to take it in um whereas with halloween because of that because of that rights situation um the, we we it, was, it forced Dimension to do more of a dance with Trankus. You know, um, I don't want to call it seduction, but I would say, you know, it was making sure that, like, you know, basically it was convincing them when we really wanted to go in a particular creative direction that it was purely because we wanted to service the franchise properly. You right. Know, With, um, you know, personalities so large, was there resentment exactly. that they had to do that? Um, I don't know if resentment is the term I would use. I think it was 
you know, I think it was just sort of grudging acknowledgement that that was what was required, you know, um, that we, yeah, we, that Mustafa required a little more handholding, you know, um, he had to, he had to make sure that he knew he was being respected. Um, and, and, and if you could do that, um, then he was pretty good about signing off on creative decisions, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got along very well with, with, um, with Mustafa and his son Malik. Um, and they had a producer that they worked with on resurrection. And I think on H2O, a guy named Paul Freeman, who was their guy. And so again, it was the, the standard, you know, dynamic where, you just made sure that you were respecting, you know, that they that they felt and knew they were being heard and respected, and they were then more open to doing things, you know, as so long as they were as lo- so long as they felt that they were being properly consulted, and that you know if they had a genuine objection, they the, a they knew that their objections, you know, they had the they had the veto power, you know, it was, you know, um, um, and so it was just a dance and we, you know, and I, and I, and I was responsible for doing it and, you know, um, and I got to know them pretty well and I got to understand how to do it. Mm-hmm. When production began, what was your role? Like what, what were you up to on a day-to-day basis once things were rolling? I was, so I was on set you know, and my job before, you know, before going on set and while being on set was, you know, just making sure that there were no surprises, you know, making sure that we knew as a studio, what was being shot, what the sets were, you know, um, making sure that the pages that we were shooting were the pages that everybody had mutually signed off on. Um, you know, and then it was just little things like, you know, literally just being on set and, you know, making sure that to my satisfaction, at least, um, we were getting enough coverage that we wouldn't be stuck if there was, you know, uh, something that wasn't necessarily working in post-production. Um, and so that you know there was a fair amount of that um and that was probably less to do with that that kind of tension had less to do with um trancus versus dimension and it was more about just you know uh making sure that the director rick rosenthal um you know both had everything that he needed to get shots but also and occasionally um i was pushing him to you know do the things that I knew the studio would want, you know, even if it, even, even if we both agreed, Oh my God, this like, no, we're not going to edit the scene that way. There was a lot of like, look, if you can give the appearance of respecting that Bob is going to try and weigh in with his own opinions and see that he has choices, then he's more likely to, go with your creative choice you know that was Mm -hmm. that was sort of my role really as you know and of course i was you know basically in a not a call i would never call it a no win situation but like 
you know, to the to the filmmakers at Petrancus, they would sometimes look at me as, oh, you're the you're the spy who's constantly, you know, you know, kind of report in when we're doing something that's, you know, that you don't approve. And the reality was I was, you know, I would describe it as like, I was like the manager of a baseball team who my job was to be paranoid. My job was to constantly be thinking about what is the studio going to ask for? How are they going to overreact to something? And how can I minimize their overreaction? You know, um, so it was a lot of making sure that everybody in New York felt like I was keeping their best interests in mind and asking for things and making sure that, you know, things were being done. That I and really they, though, like, what? was it in order? Like, or were you having to put out fires? Like, was it generally chaotic or was it under control? Um, I would say it was in, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, I'd have to say it was more in control, uh, than not, you know, um, having witnessed so many troubled productions, um, and the kinds of demands that Bob and the studio would have and the kinds of things that I knew would make them angry. Um, I was really good at putting things out before it got to that place, you know? Um, yeah, little things, you know, just like recognizing, okay, you know, we need, we need to kind of like literally things like making sure that we got enough coverage so that, um, there were options when we were in post, you know, um, making sure that, you know, little things like whether it was, even if it was just as simple as like, I think the war, that wardrobe choice could be a little different. Like, you know, I knew what the taste was of the people in New York. And so I would just sort of do my best to not give them, um, fodder to complain about. Um, that was my, that was really what I was doing on a daily basis when I was Mm -hmm. on set. You know, and there were a lot of days when everything was just going perfectly fine and I didn't have to, you know, think in those ways. But there were little things. I remember in pre-production when we were coming up with the design of the headgear that, you know, the, that the, um, that the actors were wearing with their, with the little, um, lipstick cameras when they were running around. And, you know, the initial design literally looked like, you know, something out of the 1950s with wires, you know, those, like those old kind of, and, and I just went like, no, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I put my foot down because I just, I remember saying, guys, it, it, it's not simply that they're going to have a heart attack when they see this. It's bad. It's a bad idea. You know, um, we need to come up with something more elegant, you know? Um, and, you know, there would be a little bit of that tension of sometimes, um, sometimes the production would try to push back on things that they perceived as, oh, that's the studio just trying to tell us how to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then it was just, you know, it just came down to like, 
me more expressing though this is like my own personal taste you know mm-hmm. and i'm telling you right now you know and then and i would ask other people and i'd say what do you think of this what you know and once they would hear from enough voices on the set like eh, you know what that does look <laughs> a little it does look a little bit george jetsony or whatever you know mm-hmm. they would say all right see what you can come up with we'll you know and we'll revisit this in a couple of days and then the design would be streamlined and everybody would go all right that's Mm -hmm. that's great how did you all feel like before the audience got sort of their voice heard Mm -hmm. about the final product how did the studio feel how did you guys feel before it hit audiences um i think we felt the the we felt reasonably good i think the um even after we wrapped principal photography there was everybody i think knew that the ending was going to require some massaging you know um i think there was a sense of all right well we've got like one ending it's okay but it probably could be better and it's not that the studio is going to take one look at the at the director's cut and go oy vey it's more we knew that a test audience was going to tell us what we got right and what we needed to go back to the drawing board on. And I think the things that we mainly knew needed to be the thing, the thing really was just the final resolution um, because everybody knew that, you know, ultimately we had to end the movie in such a way that it left the door open for a sequel um because that was just that was the deal you know that was what mustafa wanted you know it was his franchise and he wasn't gonna he didn't want it to be killed um and so that was always the tension i mean even, i don't even want to call it tension i just mean we all knew by the time we wrapped principal photography that we were probably going to have to revisit um what the ending of the film was were you surprised by the audience reaction and were other people involved surprised? Like, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I think, um, you know, there was like collectively, um, we just recognized watching the film with an audience and seeing the test scores and hearing their responses to the first cut that, they weren't, they just weren't satisfied with how the final ending was. And we needed something that left them feeling a little more resolved. Um, and I, and I think that, you know, what ensued was just what I would legitimately characterize as healthy debate between everyone about what that, and what that resolution should really be. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and ultimately, uh, you know, what we ended up doing was there were a couple of different types of endings and and Bob rightly said, you know what, let's just let's just have two simultaneous test screenings. We literally did this on opposite you know, auditoriums on opposite sides in a multiplex. We screened the movie with two different endings and we're just like, let's see what the scores are, let's see how it plays. And if I remember correctly, um, before we even looked at the scores, 
everybody like because because we staggered the screenings by like 20 minutes or a half an hour and so we were able to watch the last 10 minutes of the movie in one auditorium and then just walk across the hall and witness the same thing and it was just i remember it was pretty clear to everyone involved in the film Mm -hmm. which and the ending that was ultimately in the movie was the one that ended up playing the best i can't i'm actually I don't remember exactly if the ending that's in the movie was when we did the the back to back test screenings. I think it what I think what may have ultimately happened was the back to back test screenings um there was an ending that was close to what was the final version um and we just at that point when we did a reshoot we just knew we just need to do a like a better version of what about the scrapped the one that was completely scrapped what was going on with that ending um i think the one that was scrapped was just uh the the teenage boy saving uh bianca kalich you know mm-hmm. uh and ryan merriman yeah ryan merriman and i think we all just were like yeah that's 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 it, it's not Our a best. satisfying enough ending we need hey, we what we need is like oh the house is burned to the ground and the you know um, I think what we tried was there was an ending that just ended with like Busta punching out a cameraman and that was sort of the fun end of the movie and then there was we did the the one with the postscript where it's like oh the firemen are putting out the fire and you know see a body and it's either like someone gets yanked under a hole yanked into a hole and that's like oh michael's still alive and then we ended up doing a reshoot that was the smoldering body in a hospital and a nurse leaning over him and you know the eye pops open and mm-hmm. that was you know and that's how the movie ended i find that the film does sort of get a harsh response from heavy duty fans but in my opinion there has been a bit of a reappraisal in recent years. And I'm wondering if that's something that you have felt as well. I have to a weird extent, I think, um, and I could be wrong about this, but that um, people look, the fans, I should say, people look back at resurrection and might feel like that was the last of the Halloween movies that seem to just be little, a little looser and willing to have more fun with, with the franchise. Um, you know, uh, it was still Michael, you know, who was still doing all of that stuff. But I think the meta aspect of that story, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made. I think that it was a little bit ahead of its time, you know, um it that's how i would look at it now you know i mean i think if you redid that movie today you probably you'd lean even more into the sort of reality you know yeah, the tiktok generation of it yeah exactly there would you know i mean you could have a field day now with yeah with have you heard of influencer houses has that ever have that do you know what that is? Wait, uh, sorry, I, I didn't hear Have you that. heard of an influencer house? It's sort of like a new thing where they take uh, I, a bunch of teenagers yeah. and they all live in a house for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time and their job is to just make content on their phone 24 hours a day. And this is really a thing that does happen now. Mm-hmm. And 
it's just funny that you say, yeah, I do believe in a way resurrection was ahead of its time because that's exactly sort of what they were setting up. Right. Yeah. I, that's, it sounds that way. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of stuff from those years um, that if you look back, you're like, Oh my God, like, you know, as much as we complain about social media, there's, you could apply social media to a lot of these stories and it would just breathe new life into them. You know? Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I would say I am happy to hear that there's a little bit of a, you know, reappraisal of, uh, resurrection. It's the, it's the Godfather three of, of, <laughs> of Halloween films, you know? I would have to agree with that. And I think anyone that knows me knows that I have a, you know, a soft spot for it myself. I think you're right. It's one of the last times it was camp it was the last time the the franchise had fun especially with these last three films you say what you want about them they're very serious yeah i i i would i would agree with you there um yeah i've only i actually only have seen the first of the three david gordon greens mm-hmm. um, what did you think of it um i liked it i do remember feeling like yeah it was what you just said it was very serious you know um and you know almost treated the franchise too delicately you know i think so yes and maybe some would argue resurrection had the opposite problem but that's where my tastes tend to go yeah and i and i can i can believe me i can see that argument you know um uh and there's probably some kind of a middle ground um you know um, well, overall, how would you say your experience was working on this film? Um, I would say it was good. You know, I, um, it was, it was very creatively satisfying because, um, you know, I really felt like I was involved in the process of the development, production and post-production, you know, um, I mean, and it's not that is not to say, oh, my God, I'm proud of it because I think I did it because it was brilliant and it all worked because I'm a genius. Um, that's not what I mean. I mean, it was it was satisfying because I was involved in, you know, ensuring that certain things worked. And then I was also ins- I was also, uh, you know, a lot of the job was solving problems. Um, and and there and it was certainly satisfying to see the result you know to see like oh i remember that work because i you know got in there and you know wrestled with everybody and got them to try and do something differently you know or or i could just see certain sequences and go well it's a miracle that worked <laughs> you know that kind of yeah. that, that sort of thing um yeah so uh, in that sense, it was it was satisfying. Do I think that that's the way every movie that gets made should should go? No, you know I think like it's it's important for you know the the creative uh, the exact you know the the executive producer or the you know the people behind the scenes that are doing the development should have a voice. But you know, in a perfect world, um, you get it all right you get, you figure it all out before the cameras start rolling, you know? Um, but I'm 
I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that even on, you know, the most creatively perfect movies that you've ever seen, if you go back to the filmmakers and behind the scenes, you know, it didn't just effortlessly, it wasn't like, oh my God, all those takes were perfect. And I look at, I was able to hang out at craft services all day long because they had it so under control. Everything was great. No, I think, you know, even in those, even in the most amazing movies ever made, there's, there, there was always, there's always some tension on the set. I don't mean like, I don't mean fighting. I just mean, you know, um, a lot of greatness comes out of, compromises and you know and things not going your way and you have to figure out on the fly a solution you know it's you know like oh my god we're running out of daylight and we got to get we need to make our day and then you know uh somebody says well what if we just do it with one shot and we do it this way and you're like well i guess that could work let's try it and then you know miracle of miracles it's better than it would have been yeah i always i mean like i come back to um um it's not a horror movie, but the 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 Martin Scorsese concert film, The Last Waltz, um, and Muddy Waters has this just electrifying performance of um, Manish Boy, uh, you know, da, 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 da. and um, and it's one shot. I think there's like a couple of cutaways, and then it's just basically the entire song is just him, and it's the camera slowly pushing in on him. And then holding on his face, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, that's brilliant!" And it turns out it was somehow all the other cameras had like <laughs> run out of film, and they were doing, and they and they accidentally had to do the changeover rolls of film as uh-huh. he had started. But there was one guy. I think it was. I think it might have been Vilmos Zygmunt who was because they had all these like A-list camera guys working, like literally operating the cameras it's like it's a murderer's row of cinematographers and vilmos was on it and somebody radioed him and said do not move the camera off of him you are the only camera rolling right now and so he just was like okay i'm just gonna stay focused on it i'm gonna slowly push in and because you know they were all if they all were rolling they'd like shoot some of it and somebody would you know pan oh there's a great thing i can pick up a detail they were like no and it just, you know, that was one of those happy accidents. So cool. I, I take no, that story for what it's worth. So fascinating. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, outside of horror, or maybe not, what are you working on now? Um, I'm well. I'm I'm I am developing some genre stuff um, with another writer, and I, I'm always partnering or trying to partner up with other former um, Dimension executives who are now either at other companies or are independent producers as well. There's definitely a lot of like, you know, um, partnering up that goes on with different people these days. But Mm -hmm. I'm also uh, in the middle of developing and hopefully getting the financing together with two other producers on a, a biopic about Candy Darling, who was a transgender actress who worked with Andy Warhol in a bunch of his movies from the early seventies and uh, the Lou Reed song, take on walk on the wild side is about her is about, it's partially about her. It's actually about all the different act people who were in those factory movies. So like, you know, uh, Holly Woodlong, Jackie Curtis, 
um, Candy, darling. Candy's the second verse. You know, it says Candy came from out on the island in the back room. She was everybody's darling. <laughs> um, so we're, she lived a short, but, you know, I guess I would say a short, but fabulous life. Um, yeah. Uh, she died of leukemia at a young age, I think she, uh, but, um, but, you know, she is revered amongst the trans community as sort of as a trailblazer because she wasn't, she didn't carry herself as someone who was trans, she carried herself as a woman and uh-huh. that's how she saw herself. And so we're developing this project and we have, um, Hari Neff attached as wow. our, as our lead. Um, and, uh, we're, you know, now we're just going through the process of getting the script in shape and then hopefully the actor strike will resolve and we'll, <laughs> yeah, soon. we'll you know, we'll be in a position to, move forward from there but um we have a we have a really great director attached this um this trans director named zachary drucker who did a um a docuseries for hbo called the lady in the dale um and she's a performance artist as well as a director she's and um so, you know, it's just, it's the right team, I think. Um, it's not a project I was expecting you to deliver today. That's awesome. No. Very cool. You know, but of course, and of course, one of the other producers that's working on it with me is a, a woman named Katrina Wolf, who was the head of casting at Dimension for a long okay. time before she went on to becoming a producer herself. So Small um, we're keeping or not. it in the family, so to speak. <laughs> wow, really cool. And now Hari is becoming such a superstar, especially yes. after Barbie. So good timing. Oh, yeah. No, it's 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 crazy how she, how her career is taking off in a great mm-hmm. way. And so, you know, hopefully a little bit of that will will work to our advantage. Um you sure know, it will. yeah so you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's early days. I would say we are, you know, two thirds of the way to having a script that we're going to be ready to start showing to financiers and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a process. So I'm going to keep my eye out for that. Cause that sounds exactly like something I would love to watch. Awesome. Um, and I'm wondering if you so wish, Ooh. where could our audience find you online? That is a good question. I, um, I mean, I've got, basically it's, I've got, you know, my IMDB page and, uh-huh. you know, there's a random Facebook profile and I think there's an Instagram. I, okay. I am in the process of sort of, I, I feel like there was a, oh, for a long time, nobody wanted to have an online presence if, you know, if a, and I, I might put something out there, but I think it's more about Googling me and you can see the articles about things that I'm attached to. And, you know, that's sort of, that's my, yeah. when the press cycle starts, still have something to exactly something yeah. to link to. There's been, there's been some deadline announcements regarding candy, um, uh-huh. that, you know, and you'll see my name in those. Um, cool. Yeah. Maybe I'll link to something, something on that. Well, it was, super fascinating talking with you today so i really appreciate you giving me your time oh my god you're welcome this was great thank you so much for listening to development hell if you enjoy this podcast then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review it really makes all the difference in the world we'll see you next week with a brand new episode of development hell 
Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.